Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, when Dr. S. Allen Counter died in July, the world mourned a man whose celebrated career took him on an unlikely journey from the small town of America's Georgia to the hallowed halls of Harvard University via a remote Greenland village and upper echelons of influence in Sweden. Neurobiologist, ethnographer, mission-driven advocate, Dr. Counter spent the last years of his life leading the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural and Race Relations. Today, it's our radio tribute to a Renaissance man who guided generations of Harvard students and expanded the university's vision of community. Later in the show, traditionalists say you can't wear white after Labor Day, but you can definitely drink white wine, that is. Our food and wine gurus talk the end of summer libations and warm weather food and give us the scoop on the culinary trends for fall. But first, joining me here in the studio, three people who knew Dr. Alan Counter well. David Evans, Senior Admissions Officer at Harvard University and a member of the Harvard Foundation's Faculty Advisory Council. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me on, Ms. Crossley. I'm glad to have you. Dr. Bruce Price, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, Chief of the Department of Neurology at McLean Hospital, and also a member of the Harvard Foundation's Faculty Advisory Council. Thank you for joining me. My honor. And Carrie Williams, a 2016 Harvard graduate now living in San Francisco and a former intern for the Harvard Foundation. Hello, Carrie. Happy to be here. Well, it's hard to get your arms around somebody like Dr. Alan Counter's very big, big, vibrant life because he did so much. So I thought I would start by asking each of you, just in a brief way, to talk about who Alan Counter was to you. I'll start with you, Dr. Price. So Alan and I met about 20 years ago, uh, shared social circles. We're both scientists. We're both passionate about social justice. And we're both a little bit native Cherokee. And the click happened back then. It just something happens and you know there's a friendship in this, a deep and abiding friendship. Uh, I knew Alan as a, as a warrior for justice, as a fellow scientist, and I was happy to be on this Harvard Foundation board for about 10 years per his uh, invitation. We went and organized medical relief to Hurricane Katrina. So the heartfelt Hurricane Harvey victims, we know what that's all about firsthand. And we went to Haiti twice in the wake of the earthquake. And so when you spend 24-7 time hip to hip for a week, you get to know each other really, really well. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Evans, how do you describe Alan Counter in your life? I first met Alan Counter in Nashville, Tennessee in 1961. I was coming back to visit Tennessee State University campus, and I met this young man who was rather lively and talkative, and a word that we, I know it's overused, 
a very articulate man. So we talked, and, and uh, I thought that I would never see him again. A couple of years later, I came back, and he told me that he had pledged to an organization called Alpha Phi Alpha, and that I had impressed him, and I was part of the influence of bringing him to that. A day and a half before he died, he was, his facilities were almost gone. He was frankly gaunt. And I shook his hand, as I always did, and he slipped the handshake of Alpha Phi Alpha on me, wow. and both of us smiled. Mm-hmm. He was a person of consequence. He was a, what I call a six-foot-two energizer bunny. He was what we used to say in my rural Arkansas upbringing. He was one who himself and those around him When they were working on a project, he would say, think more about the joy of the journey, not the when of the end. And somehow he could make us all do that. He was my best man at my wedding, and we went to Suriname together more than one time. Somehow he got me invited to the Nobel Prize ceremony, Peace Prize ceremony in Oslo when President Obama received the prize. And there were members of the president's entourage asking, who invited me? And I said, the same people who invited the president. (laughs) Very good. Carrie Williams and student. I'm going to guess you haven't known him since 1961. (laughs) So talk about who Ellen Counter was in your life. (laughs) So when I was first matriculating to Harvard, my father actually told me that I should meet Dr. Counter because they knew each other through Harvard Medical School. And he said he has been such an advocate for civil rights and for justice at Harvard. And you need to know this man and you need for him to be part of your college experience. And so I then became an intern at the Harvard Foundation only about a month into my college journey. So I knew Dr. Counter for my entire four years, and he, to the interns, was our patriarch. We called it our Harvard Foundation family, and he was the guiding light and our beacon through that journey. And so when I think of him, I think of this really inspiring, incredible patriarch that I was so fortunate to know. So because he has such a long and storied career, and there's so many aspects to it, I thought I'd break it up into chunks. And I wanted to start with the thing that had brought a lot of attention to him many years ago and it continued to be very much a part of his legacy. And that was his work in discovering and reclaiming, actually, the legacy of Matthew Henson. And Matthew Henson, for people who don't know, was one of two people who went to the North Pole. You probably heard about Admiral Perry, who was the other gentleman, who was the lead person, I guess, in many history books. But there was a black man, Matthew Henson, who was there. It's a story that Dr. Counter was fascinated with all of his life and determined that he would go there and went to this rural area, discovered the sons, the descendants of both Perry and Henson, brought them back to the United States. I'm doing this fast because there's a lot to it. And then once he brought them back to the United States to meet the cousins and all of that, lobbied very strongly to President Reagan that Matthew Henson got the much-deserved attention that he should have gotten. He died in poverty. Perry was, was buried in Arlington National Cemetery, and he lobbied President Reagan to say that Uh, His remains should be brought up from the Bronx where he was buried and brought to Arlington National Cemetery. And that happened. I mean, you know, if you just did that one thing in your life, that's kind of that's kind of huge. You're literally reshaping history or bringing it forward in a way that, you know, I couldn't have imagined. And I remember long before I came to Cambridge hearing that story. I never thought I would ever meet the man who did it. 
So I'd love each of you just to talk about, because it seems so huge, about what it meant, that discovery and the work that he did to reclaim Matthew Henson's legacy. The story of Matthew Henson has been on the circuit in the black community ever since 1909 or whenever they visited. But it was really enwrapped in folklore in some ways that we said that a black man discovered the North Pole and they cheated him out of the recognition, et cetera, et cetera. We knew that there was some truth in that, but we had no way of proving it. And so Allen took it upon himself. His objective seemed to have been at first, I'm going to retract the footsteps of Matthew Henson. In so doing, he got there and then he encountered these whispers about these men, noble as they were, left some offsprings up there. So he then, being Allen, set out to find, because the word was two of them are still alive. Not only did he find them, but he went another Allen step and said, I'm going to bring them back to the U.S. How are you going to do that? He did it. And he brought them back to the U.S., brought them to Harvard. They were duly recognized with high honors at Harvard, president of Harvard, met them, et cetera. Took them to Washington, met their relatives. Not only did he have Henson remains reinterred in Arlington, but his wife was also reinterred because Perry's wife is there. Then there became the naysayers saying, well, Perry and Henson did not really technically get to the North Pole. Allen being Allen, he was able to convince the United States Navy to lend him a nuclear submarine. <laughs> and he went under all of that ice and came up directly under the North Pole. <laughs> he had a way of proving things. Carrie, did you know that about him before you came to Harvard? I did. So one of my favorite memories of Dr. Kanner was an evening toward the end of the semester. I think it was the winter of 2015. And he invited many of his students to his home. Mr. Evans was there also. And he walked us through his house before serving us dinner. And it was something out of a museum. Everything he showed us was a different adventure that he'd undertaken, a different community of people that he had helped. And so walking through these exhibits, if you will, was just a testament to this life of service and this mission of uncovering hidden stories and pieces of history that had been forgotten. And so when I think about my experiences with Dr. Counter, I remember that evening as sort of a living memorial to all he had done. So this story absolutely resonates with me. Dr. Price, before you respond to this, I wanted us to take a listen to Dr. Counter himself on the occasion of the burial in Arlington Cemetery of uh, Matthew Henson with all of the relatives and all of the fanfare. Here is Dr. Alan Counter at Arlington Cemetery. Welcome home, Matthew Henson. Welcome to a piece of God's earth that you have earned in this most hallowed of American resting places. Welcome home, Matthew Henson. Welcome home, Brother Matthew. Welcome home. That is really so powerful. Dr. Price, you want to respond to that? Kind of makes my eyes moist, thinking about Alan and, and who we have so recently lost. Only Alan could have done this, I believe. The personality, the force, the persuasion, the persistence only Alan, and we're going to have a hard time replacing him. Oh, yeah. 
there'll be numbers of people have to step up to replace one man, Alan Cantor. Now, when he was up there, uh, he was also a scientist, and he, was, he liked solutions. So he identified hearing loss in the hunters in the Inuits and determined, uh, with the help of uh, an audiologist, Dr. Leo Buchanan, that it was because they were shooting the rifle so many times, holding it next to their ear, that this was the cause, and so simple solution. He brought up earplugs. So he left them a better place and a better life. And that's the thing that's so interesting about him. Throughout his life, he's got the mission of advocacy, I would say, on many fronts and in many different ways. But part of that very much was also going back to his scientific roots. And by the way, he was uh, nominated and named to the prestigious Explorers Club, we should mention, which is for people who have done specific and special scientific research around the world in the way that he did. This wasn't the only place that he did research of of that nature. Mr. Evans, you work with him on some of the work that he did in Suriname. Yes. And Suriname, he got my attention by inviting me to join him in 1973 to visit some African-descended people who had been brought to the New World by the Dutch and the English as slaves. However, they rebelled. Suriname used to be Dutch Guiana and fought a a century-long guerrilla war and won their freedom through treaties. And they, at that time, had remained in the interior, I would say semi-isolated. So he had heard about them, and uh, he invited me to go along with them to study them uh, ethnographically and also to study how the manioc cassava affected their hearing because part of his study was the eighth, eighth cranial nerve, the auditory nerve, and the manioc cassava does... Uh, can do some damage to that. It has cyanide in it. Now, interestingly, when we went down, the westernized people whose ancestors waited for a century almost to, to be emancipated, they looked down on those people as being in the interior, mm-hmm. as being sort of uncivilized, et cetera, et cetera. But then after Dr. Counter kept pushing and they were written up in Time Magazine and Newsweek and otherwise and the glorious fight that they did before George Washington, the westernized people started to respect them. And everybody claimed that my father was from the city, but my mother's people were from the interior, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. Everybody marched with Martin Luther King, in other words. Oh, yes. yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with David Evans. You just heard him, Dr. Bruce Price, and Carrie Williams, all of whom are connected to the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural and Race Relations and its former director, Dr. Alan Counter. Dr. Counter died in July, and today we are reflecting on his life and legacy. So that was some of his exploring that was quite significant, as we've just discussed. Obviously, a huge piece of his life was the legacy at Harvard running the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural and Race Relations, which is not that old, 1981. Um, Now, when this came up, Dr. Counter was interviewed by the History Makers, which is an archive of prominent African-Americans. And he said then that um, it was a unique concept for Harvard. These are his words. And that Harvard didn't have buildings attached to race per se, but what he wanted to do was to bring everybody into the pot. And there ought to be a way through a Harvard lens to actually appreciate 
various cultures and to try to dive into what's often a thorny issue, even thornier these days, I think, race relations. And he took that on. But a lot of folks, Kerry, thought that was a no-win situation for him. But yet, by the time you got there, years later, he was right at it. What was the importance of the work that he did at the foundation in this way? I think the word that first comes to mind is community. And I think what I saw at the foundation, which was really powerful, was communities coming together of folks who identified with each other. So, for example, connections within a racial community, within a religious community. And so that was one type of community that Dr. Counter really helped to foster. But then the step beyond that is how do we bring all these different folks together and encourage some cross-community dialogue. So I think it was the really brilliant marriage of the inter and the intra communities that he wove together into this incredible fabric. And so he was the leader and the visionary there, but as a student, he empowered us. And so at 18 and 19 years old, we were putting on events and bringing on speakers and exposing thousands of our peers to these conversations. And so I think what made him such a wonderful leader and a wonderful teacher for us was having this vision, but inviting students to execute it and make it part of our own life's work. And one of the signature events for uh, the Harvard Foundation was cultural rhythms, uh, Dr. Price. And so all of that coming together, if you were an outsider like myself, I've been to some of the cultural rhythms events. First, you had celebrities. The last one I went to was Viola Davis, not too shabby. And then you had all of the students who really ran the program and gave you a good sense of a lot of what was happening at Harvard such that you came away with what embracing that expression, I too am Harvard. That's what I came away with. How did you see the work of the foundation in that way as a faculty advisor? So uh, both as a friend and a physician, I kind of had that last two weeks of dying conversation with uh, Alan and what would his legacy be. And on his tombstone, he said it would be mentor. Mm-hmm scientist, explorer, and father. Alan had the the largest Rolodex in the world, to my knowledge. So, and Carrie can speak to this, the cultural rhythm is a big, big deal on, on campus. Alan led, but at times he led from the back because he let the students lead and taught them immense skills, which hopefully carry over into now. And I mean thousands of kids of all different persuasions, colors, creeds. Because he believed that, uh, yes, you can have your single identity in this or that, but you need to learn dialogue, to be civil, to exchange ideas, to struggle. What's the truth? What's the right path or not? So as an example for cultural rhythms, he would ask the the undergrads, who would you like this year? (laughs) They would name someone, let's say years ago, Shakira. Denzel Washington, Dan Aykroyd, as I remember. The list goes on. Viola Davis, not bad, huh? Mm, not, not bad. And Rihanna, somehow, not bad. Yeah, and Rihanna, yeah. right, not bad. Mm-hmm. Somehow he came up with these people. Now, it helped to have a Harvard plaque. That's a draw. Every mother, right, <laughs> wants to be proud of that kind of fact. But they came and they were chosen because they were not only celebrities, because they were humanitarians. And that was a very strict criteria for him. So I think that was one of his points of pride and joy. And uh, Carrie, I pass it to you because cultural rhythms probably meant a lot to you as well. It did. So I had the honor of directing cultural rhythms Mm. with a dear friend of mine, Irfan Mahmood, who was my 
partner in that project. And Dr. Counter said to us, I think we were either 20 or 21 at the time. And he said, you've got the biggest stage at Harvard. Do what you want with it. And it had been going on for 25, 30 years at that point. And so there was a clear vision and path. But he and said. And expectation. Absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. With Dr. Counter, there are always mm-hmm. the highest expectations. And he knew that we could rise to that occasion. And I think what was really special to me about Cultural Rhythms was it was a show, and that was important, but it was also a chance to make visible things that aren't always visible in our society, on our college campuses. And so it was a chance to reckon with how do we put our identities in front of others? How do we talk about who we are in ways that might not come out in the classroom every day? And so it, for us, was a really important starting point to get to know our peers in a deeper, more personal sense, but in public. And so I think it provided quite a literal platform and stage for performers. But then I think the symbolism there and the conversations that followed had to do with how do I live in my identity and all the complexities about what that means? And how do I, when I want to or when I feel empowered to, bring that out into the public to share with others and to create those bonds with my peers. And so that, to me, is what Cultural Rhythms is really about. And I have to give compliments because every time I had attended one of the events, the students were the hosts, and they were very skilled. Uh, so, you know, congratulations to all of you who were who served in those roles because it was that was tough. It was a lot going on in those events. It wasn't a small thing. I, I want to pick up on something you said, Carrie Williams, 2016 Harvard graduate and former intern at the uh, Harvard Foundation, making visible that which might not be visible to others. And talk to you, David Evans, senior admissions office and also faculty advisor to the uh, Harvard Foundation, about the portrait project. I actually invited Dr. Counter here to talk about the portrait project when he commissioned a portrait for the first native graduate of Harvard. And he had to commission it by trying to envision what that person looked like because there was no photos. It was quite a moving, really deep ceremony and event. But the bottom line was that he came up with this idea and explained it about what, because he he thought it was really important that there be Mm -hmm. a a visibility that Mm -hmm. every student could see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When he accepted the uh, directorship of the foundation, there was no template for what was to be done. I've been on the advisory committee since its inception. And frankly, when he told me that they were trying to get him interested in directing the foundation, I advised against it because he was on the tenure track at that time. And race relations at that time, there was anti-apartheid movement going on and all this. And I sort of jokingly said to him, in track and field, that position would be called the javelin catcher. (laughs) And Reverend Gomes and some others were able to convince him that you will have quite a bit of uh, time and opportunity and freedom to innovate. And so he he took it on. And the cultural rhythms and uh, the portrait project and all that were not a part of it. And the budget that he was given reminded me of something that was said by a former football coach at Southern University where her father, William's father and uncles were from, Gerald Kimball, once said, Black football coaches have done so much with so little. They expect to do everything with nothing. And that was almost what I saw in Allen because the budget was very small, and yet there were demands on him to produce all of these very, very, very fantastic achievements. 
and he was able to do it. And going back to something Dr. Price said earlier, it was almost as if the students would come to him and say, well, we want to see the, the Queen of England here Monday, and this is Thursday. He would say, that's ridiculous. And come Monday, you would see a limousine <laughs> pulling up with her in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, we're celebrating the life and legacy of Dr. Alan Counter, intellectual activist, explorer, Dr. Counter, the founding director of the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural and Race Relations, passed away at age 73 in July. I'm circling back to this portrait project, uh, Mr. Evans, because I think people need to understand what it is. He commissioned portraits of very important persons of color and other folks, some who were not persons of color, who had made a significant contribution to Harvard that had not been recognized. Let's understand that when he started, there were 750 oil portraits. Only 60 of them were white women. So he said, come on. We have a whole legacy of folks who are hanging on walls. And if you're a student, you think this is all there is. And it wasn't. So now when you walk around, you can see some prominent Asian-American graduates. You can see some prominent African-American graduates. You can see Caleb, as we said, the commission piece for the Native American. We've got Florence Ladd, the head of the Bunting Institute, and on and on and on. And these portraits are in places of prominence at Harvard. That, to me, is... That's a statement, Dr. Price. <laughs> so one of the portraits is yours truly, David Evans. Oh, that's right. David hanging Evans, in the, that's uh, right. What, what used to be called the Freshman Library. Mm-hmm. So... He recruited a, a classmate of mine, Steve Coit, who kind of is the Howard Foundation's official portrait artist. And for your knowledge, uh, he just completed Alan Counter's portrait, wow. okay. which will be unveiled at the public memorial service at Harvard on Seven. September the 27th, 4 p.m. Right. And Steve Coit is actually donating this gratis, no wow. charge, in honor in gratitude of Alan Counter. Reminds me of something that is rather widespread in our society, and we're seeing it now with the removal of these Confederate monuments, that so many enlightened leaders and scholars and others were essentially blind to, the, to that, that there were so many people for 350 or 60 years, and especially since Richard Theodore Greener, the Harvard class of 1870, the first African-American, that all of these African-Americans and women and all that have come through and there were no portraits of them. That was the part that, and because in many cases, when Alan Counter approached certain persons of influence and power about it, it's, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, as my mother used to say, to be smothered with a, a million pounds of feathers, you're just as dead as with 25 pounds of lead. Mm-hmm. And so love and good intentions neglecting is just as bad as willful neglect. That's right. I want to let people know that part of uh, Alan Counter's legacy also was his work uh, in Sweden. He studied at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and then he was a council general of Sweden in Boston and later ambassador to Sweden, which is how he could negotiate your getting over uh, for the the Nobel Peace Prize of when uh, former President Barack Obama was honored in that role. Let's talk about Alan Counter the man, because he was so funny to me and kind and generous. First of all, he had one of the Southern affectations that I very much appreciate. He never referred to me by my first name. It was also always Miss Crossley. I wonder in your generation, Carrie Williams, what you thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking to my fellow interns the morning we heard that he passed away, and that was one of the anecdotes that came up, that he met me when I was 18, I was always Miss Williams. I was never Carrie to him. 
And one of my fellow interns was saying that just felt like a really profound show of respect, no matter your age, but that you deserve to have a seat at the table. You're going to be spoken to with a sense of respect. And in turn, that commanded respect as well. And so Dr. Counter, I think for us as his young students, we felt he was grooming us to be professional and to always think no matter how young we are, we deserve to be treated with dignity. And then in turn, we had to act with that same type of integrity. And so it was funny. I've never been Miss Williams, but I think a really important lesson in understanding your own self-worth. Dr. Price, what about him personally that you think just was stood out? Well, um, to most people, he uh, addressed them with their formal titles. I think you and I had the honorary titles of our first name, Mm -hmm. David and Bruce. He was a storyteller. You know, there's not that many really, really good storytellers, but you could sit over a dinner and it would be a monologue, but it would be an interesting one as he would go into story after story with modesty. Uh, and again, he was a solution maker. So he, he goes to uh, Ecuador and he finds in a gold mining community that mercury exposure uh, led to all kinds of neurologic uh, difficulties. He goes to another silver mining area in Ecuador and he finds that they're using batteries to extract lead and that that's leading to deafness. So he appeals with his Rolodex probably to the president of Ecuador all the way up and say, we got to stop this. We can intervene. This is stupid. This is not necessary. So what he, he did, amongst other things, is he helped these tribes, as I recall, build fish ponds as a better way to make a living with less toxicity. So Alan's mind was always at about 110 miles an hour. And if I could add, because I think that Alan learned a lot from the Harvard Foundation. Mm. One, he was a deep listener, which is unusual mm. in these environments. And I, I think he, and having three daughters helped too, I mm. think he learned to become uh, an advocate of women's empowerment. I think he learned to become an advocate of uh, sexual orientation, whatever it may be. He was the one person brave enough to try to get Palestinian and Israelis to talk together and engage, and what can we do together? Uh, I admire him for his courage, his perseverance, and his vision of, of a better world. His lifetime and his, his upbringing, geographically and otherwise, was that he, the first probably 17 or 18 years of his life were in Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And he went from that to be the consul uh, for Sweden and to interact with the chair of the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Laureate uh, Literature Prize, etc. So it was very hard for many to understand what this man brought in his uh, lifetime. And there were those who, when they established the Harvard Foundation, thought that, oh, he will make changes, but he won't be disruptive, etc. But he said, if what in the past was wrong, we've got to change it. If that calls for disruption, so be it. One of the things I remember him saying is that as much as it means to the students, and I too am Harvard, I want the day to come when we can take that adverb to out of it Mm. and the student can say, I am Harvard. Mm. And he said also that we must get beyond being tolerant to being respectful. David Evans, how will you miss him personally? Well, I miss his phone calls all time of night and day. I miss his humor, and we could we could joke about almost anything. And uh, we remind each other of things that we promised to do and have not done, et cetera. 
and we had ideas because we start, I came in 69, 70 year. He came to Harvard in 72. And so we were there at that great transition, that sea change. And we remember some of the friction and all that uh, of the early years. And so we would reflect on those. And it was really sort of inspiring to see how much change had happened and that we somehow survived it. So going forward, what happens now to the Harvard Foundation? What would you like to have happen, I guess, is the better question. And who do you see leading it? I mean, that's, this is all speculation, we understand. But briefly, I'd love to hear from each of you. All right, David uh, Evans. Given the reality of now, you almost need three or four persons to bring forth another Allen. Mm. He was a truly outstanding scholar. He was a very innovative uh, explorer. He was a diplomatic leader of a race relations foundation, and he was a good mentor for students. All of that does not normally come in one person. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Carrie? What I do know is that there are so, so many students whose lives he touched who feel this urgent sense of needing to live out his legacy. And so I, over the past couple months, have been connecting with his former students and his mentees. And we are a hybrid of, I think, a family and an army. And we feel so deeply connected to him and to his memory. And so I know moving forward, we're all just committed and honored to live in service of that vision. Okay. Dr. Price? So Alan and I had the honor of uh, listening to Reverend Peter Gomes' final conversations and his wishes for the, for the new world. Former chaplain of Memorial Church. Former chaplain mm -hmm. of Memorial Church. Ironically, it was in my time to listen to Alan when he was trying to tidy up his, his life just for his sense of humor. What he did was he gave material things, I'm sure, to his three daughters, but to other people as memories, as material memories. So the story goes that my mama thought I was special. And uh, she thought that first I should win the Nobel Prize in medicine and followed by the Nobel Prize in peace. <laughs> uh, Alan remembered that story and within a week or two of his passing gave me five Nobel medals. But the joke was they were chocolate filled. <laughs> <laughs> and he smiled. Aww. And he smiled. The last thing I would remember about Alan is he had a motto. I learned this from his daughters at, at the private funeral service. And they said, Dad always taught us the following. There is always a way. Mm -hmm. And I think in these deep and dark times we face, we got to remember that. There is always a way. Do you, do you have a, any sense of who could lead now behind him? I think it's going to take multiple people mm -hmm. to shore up uh, what he has left us. And I would like this army behind him mm -hmm. of all the graduates of the Harvard Foundation to please step up and get involved and help shape the future. Well, I thank you all for joining me for this very important conversation. I really thought he was fabulous, and I was always amazed at the breadth and the depth of his, both his expertise and his kindness. So thank you all. And thank you very much, Ms. Grossley. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. And let's hope that Alan Cantor lives on. 
David Evans is a senior admissions officer at Harvard University and a member of the Harvard Foundation's Faculty Advisory Council. Dr. Bruce Price, associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, chief of the Department of Neurology at McLean Hospital, and also a member of the Harvard Foundation's Faculty Advisory Council. And Carrie Williams is a 2016 Harvard graduate now living in San Francisco and a former intern for the Harvard Foundation. Harvard will remember Dr. Allen Counter on September the 27th at 4 p.m. in a special service at the historic Memorial Church. Please visit our website for more information about Dr. Counter with links to the Harvard Foundation and more. Coming up, we're making a hard turn here. Transitioning your palate from summer to autumn, our food and wine experts are here to tell us about how to add spice and, yes, pumpkin flavors to our plates and wine glasses this fall. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.